The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. Our scripture reading this morning is Judges chapter 2, verses 6 to 13. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in Timnath Ares, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gaash. And all of that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods, from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the bells and the Ashtaroth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. So, Father, I ask that as we continue through the book of Judges, you continue to do your work in opening our eyes. Open our eyes both to the warnings that this book contains and the witness that it is to your great grace. Father, I pray that we would not be scared to walk with you and your word into the darkest places of life so that we may see the brightness of the light of your gospel in Jesus Christ. I pray that now you would feed us on your word. Lay a feast before us. Take these few loaves and fishes that I've got and multiply We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus, for his glory and the good of your people. Amen. So, if you haven't already, I do invite you to open your Bibles to Judges chapter 2. And we get to start off this morning just rip-roaring, exciting, talking about the structure of Judges. Yay! If you remember from several weeks ago, I told you that scholars see parallels between the structure of Judges and the structure of the creation narrative in the beginning of the book of Genesis. These things look very similar, except for the fact that they move in opposite directions. So, for instance, Genesis 1, the creation narrative, it has an introduction followed by six days of creation. And then it culminates with all of creation resting in God's rule as king. Well, Judges has an introduction, just like the creation narrative. And then similar to the creation narrative having six days, Judges has six cycles that we're going to walk through. Six cycles of major Judges. And then, like the creation narrative has a conclusion, Judges has a conclusion, except this one has moved in the opposite direction. Instead of all of creation being at rest with God enthroned as king, Judges ends with no rest in the land that God had promised to give his people because in those days there was no king in Israel. 
Judges moves in the opposite direction. Genesis, the creation account, moves from chaos, this primordial, chaotic waters, to God ordering everything. So it moves from chaos to order. Judges moves from order, things seemingly going okay, to complete and utter chaos by the time it ends. Genesis moves from darkness to light. Judges moves from light to darkness. We've seen all of that, but this morning, I think we need to take a closer look at why. Why does this happen in the book of Judges? Judges chapter 2 and verse 6 through chapter 3 and verse 6 actually gives us a second introduction to the book. We already walked through introduction number one, took us two sermons to do so. Now we're going to walk through introduction number two. It's going to take us two sermons to do so. And this introduction zooms in to give us a closer look at what the first one presented in general. This is another way that Judges is kind of similar to the structure of Genesis. You remember Genesis 1 and 2? Genesis chapter 1 gives us this great, big, grand, cosmic view of God's creation. And then Genesis 2 zooms in to give us a closer look at God's special creation of Humanity and the place that he made for them in Eden. Judges, likewise, had that first introduction and it gave us a big view of what went wrong with God's people. Why they weren't able to finish settling the promised land. And it gave us a big view of how God responds to them. And now, in introduction number two, we're gonna zoom in and we're gonna get a closer look at everything we've already seen. We're going to get a closer look because we need to see more. If we want to be able to make sense of the six cycles of major judges that are headed our way, then we need to see more of what went wrong. We we need a closer look at why Israel's faith in God failed. We need a closer look at where they placed their faith instead. That's what we're going to look at today, those two things. But that's not all we need to see. We also need to see more about how God responds to them and that. We need to see, we need a closer look at God's righteous response to their sin. And we need a closer look at God's great, gracious response to their sin. Those are the two things we will look at next week. Four things in all. We need a closer look at these four things things because Judges 2 is not merely zooming in on what went wrong for Israel. It's zooming in on what goes wrong for us, in us. It's not merely zooming in on how God responded to Israel, to them back then. It's zooming in on how he responds to us now. We need to take a closer look for the sake of our faith being rooted in God's gospel grace. So, Take a closer look with me. Judges chapter two, let's start in verse six. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 and they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance at Timnath Harris in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountains of Gaash. So, introduction number two begins pretty much the exact same way that introduction number one began with the death of 
Joshua. That's how we know we're getting a second introduction. We're backing up and covering the same ground again, but this time we're zooming in a little bit closer and getting a little bit more detail. The last introduction just began right off the bat with the death of Joshua. Here we get a little bit more. We're actually being taken backwards in time to Joshua 24. I encourage you, go back and read it. I know Joshua, it's right up there with everybody's favorite Sunday afternoon activities, reading some Joshua 24, but go read it. What happens is Joshua leads the people in a covenant renewal ceremony. Joshua has been leading them through the conquest. They've broken the the back of Canaanite resistance. All that's really left is for them to drive out the remaining tribes and settle the land. Joshua knows that he's about to die, so he leads them in a covenant renewal ceremony where the people pledge themselves to be faithful to Yahweh. Even when Joshua warns them, you rebel, you worship other gods, you don't do what you're supposed to do, there will be judgment from the Lord. They still say, we will be faithful to Yahweh. So Joshua renews the covenant with them and then he commissions the people to go do what they're supposed to do, to finish settling the land, driving out the remaining Canaanite tribes. And we're told this is what the people set out to do. Just like we talked about when we went through introduction number one, I mean, this opening picture, things seem to be going pretty well. People setting out to do what they have been told to do. It's a pretty decent opening picture. I mean, just look again at verse seven. We're told the people serve the Lord all the days of Joshua. And not just that, they serve the Lord all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua. But even that strikes a little bit of a foreboding note, doesn't it? Like it leaves the question kind of hanging in the air. What will happen When not only Joshua dies, but all of those elders, all of those leaders die, what happens when no one from Joshua's generation is left? We don't have to wait long for the answer. Look at verse 10. And all that generation, Joshua's generation, also were gathered to their fathers. That means buried alongside them. They all died. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord, or the work that he had done for Israel. Here we get our first of four closer looks. Remember, we're only doing two of them today, but there will be four in all, all right? Our first of four closer looks. Number one, we need a closer look at Israel's failed faith. We need a closer look at Israel's failed faith. If you remember, as we walked through the first introduction of this book, we talked about the fact that Israel's faith in God failed. And do you remember as we walked through uh, the the portion of uh, the southern tribes, portion of chapter one that covers the southern tribes trying to settle the land? You may remember when we got to chapter one in verse 19, the people encounter the iron chariots that those living in the plains have. They freak out. They didn't have faith that God could defeat such superior weaponry. Their faith failed. But why? Why didn't they trust in the Lord? Or this didn't just happen with the southern tribes. You might remember it also happened with the northern tribes. If you go back and you look at chapter one around verse 24, the northern tribes make a covenant with the Canaanite when they're trying to defeat the city of Luz. 
Because apparently that covenant would guarantee victory more than having a covenant with the living God. That wasn't a, enough. Israel's faith failed again. We've seen their faith fail over and over, but we need a closer look at why. And that's what the second introduction of Judges is giving us right here. In verse 7 and in verse 10. Those two verses compare and contrast two generations. One who knew the Lord and one who didn't. And did you notice the difference? Look at it again. Verse seven, the generation that knew the Lord were told they knew him because they had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. But in verse 10, the next generation did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. Do you see the difference? In other words, one generation had experienced the Lord's powerful salvation. They'd experienced literal salvation out of slavery and the accidents. They'd experienced the Lord powerfully leading them through the wilderness. They'd experienced the Lord fighting for them in the conquest of Canaan. The other generation had not experienced any of these things. They did not know. Yada, that's the Hebrew word. They did not know. That word right there, know in verse 10, it doesn't necessarily mean that this new generation had never heard about all of that. It doesn't mean they'd never heard about the exodus or the wilderness wanderings or the conquest. It is insanely likely that they had. It was almost next to impossible. It means, when it says they didn't know, it means they didn't have experiential knowledge of those things. They didn't have that kind of experiential knowledge of God. In other words, they may have had a head knowledge, but they had no heart knowledge. They may have known about God, but they didn't actually know him. They had no real relationship with him. And this is why. This is why their faith failed because it was no real faith at all. Head faith, no heart faith. They didn't have a real relationship in which they knew the Lord. It's kind of like, have you, uh, you ever seen a kid um, at Christmas time whose parents are trying to get them to sit on Santa's lap and there's no way on the planet they are going to do so? I don't know this guy. I don't trust this guy. And there's like nothing the parents can say. Like parents know this whole process. They've been doing it their whole lives. They got great trust in the whole Santa machine. Kids, there's no convincing. You may trust him, I don't. Your faith in that guy? Not my faith. I saw that guy like last weekend. He was on a Harley. Don't think that he's safe now just because he's in like a red suit. This is why the faith of Israel failed because it wasn't their faith. It was the faith of their parents, but it had never become their own. They had no real relationship with God and so they didn't trust him. So when they see iron chariots, of course they freak out and don't trust in the Lord. They don't know the Lord, not like their parents did. Their parents knew some may trust in horses, some may trust in chariots, but we will trust in the name of our Lord. They didn't know this Lord. So of course they won't look to him to trust him in that situation, but will look to military 
might. When they go to conquer the city of Luz, of course they're going to compromise and make political covenants with Canaanites instead of trusting in God. Why would they do that? Why would they trust God? They don't actually know him. Shades, I hope that as we're talking through this right here, you're beginning to see parallels. Parallels of how all the truths that we are unfolding are prevalent within our own day. How many, how many Christians, professing Christians, freak out over things happening in the surrounding culture and don't look to the Lord, but to the weapons of the world? How, how many professing Christians are willing to compromise their faithfulness to Christ in order to make literal political covenants? Thinking that that is the way that God's power will be displayed and victory in this world will be gained. All of that shades displays a lack of faith. It reveals a people that don't actually know the God who saves. So they look for alternative saviors. If they knew the God who saves, they would trust him and trust that he is conquering even when it looks like he is not. They would trust that he is conquering even when it looks like he is being conquered. Is that not the reality that stands at the very heart of our faith? The cross is where our God, our God conquered. And it's precisely where it looked like he was being conquered. In the moment where all looked most lost is when he won. Do you know this God? Who displays his strength, not through political power, but through weakness whose kingdom rocks this world, not by being like the kingdoms of this world, but by being like a mustard seed or leaven that infects an entire loaf of bread. Do you know this God who humbles himself to the point of death on a cross in order to achieve ultimate victory? Shades, we've got to take, each of us personally, we have got to take a closer look at our faith and ask, is it really ours? Or is our faith just some tradition that we have been handed? Or is it a real, passionate relationship with the God of salvation? Do we know him and the work he's done for his people? Have you experienced his saving power like what he put on display in the Exodus? Has he saved you from slavery to sin? Have you experienced the power he put on display by leading his people through the wilderness? Have you experienced the power of his Holy Spirit leading you through the wilderness of this world? Have you experienced do you have faith in the truth, the power that he puts on display in the conquest? Do you have faith in the fact that he is a God who is conquering and will conquer? Are we a generation that has true faith in God or are we a generation who has fake faith, false faith? Are we a generation who is forgetting who God is? Is. That's what's happening in Judges chapter 2. Israel is forgetting. 
And what we'll see is that such spiritual amnesia will ultimately lead to apostasy. Look at that with me. See it in verse 11. Verse 11. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. That's going to become a recurring refrain throughout the book of Judges. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them. And they bowed down to them and they provoked the Lord to anger. We'll talk about that next week. And they abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. Here we get our second of our four closer looks. Remember, these are the only two we're covering this morning. It's our second, though, of four closer looks. Number two, we need a closer look at Israel's false faith. We need a closer look at Israel's false faith. So as we walked through the first introduction to Judges, we not only saw Israel's faith in God fail, then saw them place that faith in other things. Not only saw their faith fail, we then saw them place that faith in other things. And now we get a closer look at where that faith was placed in gods that were false. Baals and Ashtaroth. Verse 12 tells us how this happened. Look at it. Pivotal verse in this passage. It gives us three verbs as to how this happened. It says that they, the people of Israel, abandoned, went after, and bowed down. They abandoned, went after, and bowed down. This is how they ended up placing their faith in gods who were false. Let's take these things one at a time. First, they abandoned. They abandoned the Lord. Or a modern way we might say it is they deconstructed their faith. That's the, that's the popular term we use for this today because it makes it sound trendy. There's a, this is one of the reasons I think that Judges is so incredibly relevant for us shades. One of the reasons that I think it is so incredibly necessary because we live in the midst of a cultural moment within Christendom where deconstructing one's faith is trendy, and Judges is a book about the people of God deconstructing their faith until it destroys them. I'm not sure, has everybody heard this term, deconstruction? Uh, people use it in different ways, primarily two. Uh, the first way that it gets used is people talk about deconstructing their faith in the sense of like, well, I just think that a lot of cultural things have gotten caked onto Christianity over the years, and I'm trying to pull those things off. Okay, that's fine. That's not bad. There's a better word for it, especially for us as Protestants. It's called reforming. Simple reformanda, always reforming. We are a people who want to be a people of the word. We want the word to constantly be reforming the way that we see God and us and life and everything. We want to be accurate to the word. And if there are things that have gotten caked on over the years that need to be gotten rid of, we don't deconstruct them, we reform them. But that's, that's not the most common way that the word deconstruction is used. The most common way it's used is to describe a complete deconstruction of one's faith. 
In other words, more accurately, a destruction of one's faith. Deconstruction just makes it sound trendy. But we didn't need a new word for this. To quote John Piper, the Bible has plenty of good words for this, much more sobering words. Right here, the word is abandonment. They abandoned the Lord. The New Testament prefers the word apostasy. That's what the Bible calls deconstructing your faith, abandoning your faith, apostatizing. And I think, here's the deal. I think that the reason the Bible uses these kinds of words is so we cannot escape responsibility. Like when people talk with me about deconstructing their faith, responsibility is always placed somewhere else or on something else or someone else. It'll be, well, I've just seen too much hypocrisy in the church or, well, the church has wounded me over the years. I'm, I'm disillusioned by the generations of Christians who have gone before me. Like, like, pick your party of whoever you want to blame, but someone else is responsible for me walking away from the faith. But words like apostasy, they make us take responsibility. Words like apostasy, it does not minimize the hurts you may have felt from the church, the harm that you may have experienced from abusive leadership. It doesn't eliminate any of that, but it emphasizes where ultimate responsibility for abandoning the faith lies. I mean, did you notice, like as we read through this, this passage in Judges 2, did you notice that nowhere in this passage is the previous generation blamed for the next generation's failure of faith. You can't find it. I've heard this passage preached that way. Like clearly, what happened right here, like a whole sermon will be centered around the, the need for one generation to pass the faith on faithfully to the next. And that's all true. Psalm 78 is great for that sermon. And I don't think that that's what's being emphasized right here. It's just not a failure of one generation. And that generation, don't get me wrong, they had plenty wrong with it. Again, just go read Joshua, some light afternoon reading. It shows us that that first generation was far from perfect, but the subsequent generation cannot blame them for their apostasy. They deconstructed. They abandoned their faith, which is really easy to do when it was never your faith in the first place. Remember, we've, we've already seen they didn't have real faith in which they personally knew the Lord. So it wasn't hard for them to abandon it as soon as something seemingly better came along. And that's precisely what we see in the second thing listed in verse 12. Look at it. They abandoned the Lord, and second, they went after other gods. They didn't have a real relationship with the Lord in the first place. And so as soon as something seemingly better comes along, they abandon him to go after them. Second, they went after other gods. Literally translated, they walked after other gods. That phraseology, it actually comes from, the, uh, uh, from practices in pagan festivals. Uh, in pagan festivals, priests would take uh, an image or an icon, literally march it through the streets of the city, and the people would gather and, fall behind, and follow behind. It's like a, like a parade leading up to the temple or place of worship where they would erupt in religious celebration. In other words, get the word picture here. The people of Israel are pictured as abandoning God in order to join the crowds of Canaanites and literally 
pursue the same things they worship. That the picture here is one of the Israelites willfully wanting and choosing to melt and meld into Canaanite culture, which is really what's at the heart of deconstruction shades. Please hear this. Deconstruction is, I'm almost willing to say never. I'm going to say it, and someone can talk to me later about the one or two exceptions, all right? Deconstruction is never really about what you are abandoning. It's about what you're accepting or who you want to be accepted by. Deconstruction is never really about what you are abandoning. Oh, well, I've got these questions with the faith, these things that I've been wrestling with, these, ah, this doesn't quite fit together, and so I'm, I'm thinking about walking away. All it takes is a little pricking in that conversation to figure out what is really happening as I am reaching and grasping. I don't really want answers to any of my questions that I'm asking. I'm just reaching and grasping for an excuse to let go because I really have something else that I want to embrace. Or I really have another group of people that I want to be embraced by. And this is getting in the way. It's exactly what we see happening. Israel melts into, they, they want to be accepted by Canaanite culture. This is why I see so many young Christians walking away from the faith. First, it was never their faith in the first place, and they're not going to be willing to hang on to it when what they really desire is to be accepted by the surrounding culture. This is what Israel does. We don't only see it here. It's the very thing we see at the conclusion of this second introduction. Look ahead with me for just a second. Look down at chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, where the second introduction concludes. And watch Israel meld into the surrounding culture. Judges 3, verses 5 and 6. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And their daughters, they took themselves for wives, and their own daughters they gave to their sons, and they served their gods. Notice again the progression of three verbs. They lived among, they took and gave daughters in marriage, they served their gods. In other words, they got comfortable, they combined, and they celebrated. That is the progression towards Canaanization. It's what one scholar, Daniel Block, says that this entire book is about, the Canaanization of God's people, how God's people deconstruct their faith. They get comfortable, they combine. This intermarriage right here, the issue is not interracial marriage right here. The issue is the exact same issue that Paul brings up to the Corinthians in the New Testament. Interfaith marriage is the problem because interfaith marriage leads to where we see this lead and they served their gods. They got comfortable, they combined, and then they celebrated the gods of the people to whom they now belonged. Israel goes all the way, all the way until they are celebrating going after the Canaanite gods. Specifically in verse 12 of chapter 2, uh, two gods are highlighted for us, Baal 
an Ashtaroth. Now we get Baals, the Baals, uh, because Baal in one sense is a title. It just means Lord. And it can really be applied to any old Canaanite God that you want to. But it was typically applied to the God of fertility. And we know that's who's being specifically identified for us whenever he gets paired with Ashtaroth. Ashtaroth. Baal, the god of fertility, had Ashtaroth as like his consort, his partner in crime. And you would worship Baal and Ashtaroth if you needed things having to do with fertility. So if you needed your crops to grow, if you wanted your cattle to multiply, or if you wanted to have kids, you, you can see why in an agricultural society, these would be their most popular gods. Baal and Ashtaroth would be at the top of your worship priority list because in an agricultural society, you need crops, you need cattle, you need a lot of kids to help with both. And so you would worship Baal and Ashtaroth because they promised to give you what you wanted. See this, Shades. See this. Worship, which was meant to be an expression of love and devotion between Yahweh and his people in which Yahweh's people found joy in him. That's what worship was supposed to be. These people don't know that because they don't know him. So what do they turn worship into? It's what it's turned into in every other religion in the world. Worship is turned into an exchange of goods and services. I will give you my worship and you will pay me what I want. The gods become the great vending machines in the sky. I will put in the right coinage of prayer and song and dance and whatever I got to and pick my preferred blessing. If you worship Yahweh, Jesus, that way, you are not worshiping him as he desires and has presented himself to be worshiped. We're worshiping like pagans. Paganism turns worship into prostitution. I will give you intimacy if you'll pay me what I want. Do you see that? God does. This is precisely how he describes his people's pursuit of other gods. Look at verse 17, chapter 2 and verse 17. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they hoard. At his blunt biblical language, they prostituted themselves after other gods and bowed down to them. The psalmist agrees. Psalm 106 recounts a lot of the history of the people of Israel. And it recounts a lot of the history of this time period of the judges. We're going to come to it several times over the next two weeks. Psalm 106, verse 34, says, They, these people, in this period of the judges, they did not destroy the peoples as the Lord had commanded them, but mixed, combined, mixed with the nations and learned to do as they did. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to demons. If you want to know why God uses as strong a language as he does, they sacrificed their sons and daughters to demons. They poured out innocent blood. The blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, and the land was polluted with blood. Thus they became unclean by their acts and played 
the whore in their deeds. That's a psalm. Try singing that. The people took what was to be an expression of intimacy and they turned it into an empty exchange. Prostituted themselves. You can even see that explicitly in the actions of Baal worship. The psalmist right there in 106, just in Psalm 106, just described child sacrifice, literally trying to buy what you want from the gods in exchange for your child's life. But, but that's not where the prostitution-like worship of Baal ends. No, no, the the empty exchange of Baal worship can also be seen in the fact that in worship of Baal and Asheroth, it often included sex, literal sexual activities with cultic prostitutes. Like you would go to worship and sleep with a cult prostitute because in the literal act of prostitution, you were acting out what you wanted the gods to do, make the land or the animals or your spouse fertile. God's people in worship were literally prostituting themselves, abandoning the relationship that they had with God, which he himself described like a marriage relationship with him as the bridegroom and his people as, as, their, as his bride. They abandoned that to go after Baal, a word that can literally be translated husband. They left their rightful husband for a false one. They prostituted themselves for profit. And as a result, we see the third thing in verse 12. They would end up bowing down. They bowed down. That's how verse 12 concludes. They abandoned the Lord. They went after other gods and they ended up bowing down to them. That's a position of servitude. You see... See what's happening right here. They went after these other gods for gain and instead they end up enslaved. That's always what happens with sin. That's the game plan of sin. It promises to give, but it takes. It, it promises profit, but it, it bankrupts. It promises life, but it brings death. It promises freedom, but it enslaves. Grant talked about this last week. If you were here, uh, Grant talked about this right about the time he was quoting his 50th French philosopher, uh, Alexis de Tocqueville, uh, who in the 1800s noted that America's pursuit of contentment through consumption actually led to them being depressed servants of that pursuit of contentment. they went after the gods of consumption for gain and ended up enslaved. Shades, do you see what this second introduction to Judges is revealing? You want to see it really clearly? Just compare the beginning and the ending of this passage. Look at Judges 2 and verse 7. It begins, and the people served the Lord. Look at Judges 3 and verse 6. It ends, and they served their gods. They abandoned God because they'd forgotten the one who had rescued them from slavery. So they went after other gods and ended up enslaved. Shades, are you getting a closer look at Israel's false faith? 
And are you hearing the warning that it is giving concerning our, our own faith? Because we, shades, we live amongst a very Canaanite-like culture, a culture that is saturated with idols of fertility. In other words, idols that promise that if you will serve them, they will give you what you want. This is the culture in which we we live, but shades, I would plead with you to see the warning and heed the warning of Judges chapter two. Don't use worship as a means of exchange. Don't prostitute yourself, shades. Don't abandon God. Don't deconstruct your faith. I promise that path ends in destruction and death. I don't care how trendy it looks. I promise it ends in tragedy. Don't abandon God to pursue the bales of our culture. Don't don't join in that religious parade that pursues the gods of money, sex, power, pleasure. That parade ends with you bowing down in servitude. It ends in enslavement. And every bit as much as Judges 2 has given us a a closer look at the path that Israel took to get to that point of enslavement, it likewise gives us a closer look at the path to freedom. All we've got to do is reverse what we've seen. Reverse Israel's false faith in which they abandoned, pursued, and served false gods. Reverse that. Serve the Lord. Pursue him. Don't abandon him. Worship him and him alone. How? Reverse Israel's failed faith in which they forgot the God who saved them from slavery. Reverse that and remember, shades, remember who your God is. He is the God of Exodus salvation. Do you know him as such? Like if you not just heard about him, but know him, do you know Jesus Christ, God in the flesh who came and lived and died to set you free from the slavery to sin and the death that it deserved, the God of Exodus salvation? Remember who your God is. He's the God that leads his people through the wilderness wanderings. Do you know him as such? Like not just heard about him, but know him. Do you, do you know the Holy Spirit, God indwelling us, who guides you by this word through the wilderness of this world, the God of our wilderness wanderings? She's remember, remember who your God is. He is the God of complete conquest. Do you know him as such? Like not just heard about him, but know him. Do you know God the Father who has promised that his kingdom will come and his will shall be done on earth as it is in heaven? Every other kingdom will be conquered and give way to his. The God of complete conquest. Shades, remember who your God is. This is why, this is why God has given us this word, not just the specific word that we've seen today out of Judges chapter two, but this entire word, he has given it to us. This word constantly calls us to remember, to remember so that our faith won't fail. And not just this word shades, but also this table. This table was given to us to call us week after week to remember. Every week we are invited to this table to take a closer look at Christ so that we might remember who our God is and what he has done so that our faith may not fail but may be made more firm. You're invited this morning, invited away 
from any false faith that you have been embracing, invited here, no matter how many times you feel like your faith has failed, you're invited to come and to literally taste the grace of God. You're invited to come this morning and take a closer look, shades, a closer look at Christ and behold your God and remember. Let's pray. Father, I am so thankful for you. I'm so thankful for your word. I am so thankful that it is filled with warning, but also that it bears witness, witness to your constant call of us to come back to you and your gracious open arms that welcome us home. Father, I pray that we would be a people, you would protect us from being a people who place faith in the false gods of our culture. pray that you would protect us from being a people who deconstruct their faith and their faith fails. Protect us from that by saving us to a real relationship with you. Constantly calling us back to your heart and to remember Father, we love you. We pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus, by our Spirit. Amen.